0: Scripture reading comes from John, chapter 6, verses 47 to 71. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon, my brothers and
1: sisters. Before we consider God's word together, let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son, the bread of God, the living bread that came down from heaven. And Lord Jesus, as we hear your word again this Sunday, I pray that our hearts would not be hardened, and that we would not be offended by this word, but that by your Spirit we would receive this word as the words of eternal life. And so we would say with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Feed us with these words today. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Well, as we return to John chapter 6 this Sunday, and this will be the third Sunday now that we are in John chapter 6, and one of the themes of the chapter is, is belief. There are those who believe in Jesus. There's those who don't believe in him and they reject him. They're offended by him. And John tells us at the end of the gospel that the reason he has written this gospel for us, uh, the way in which he arranged this gospel, the way in which he testifies to the Lord Jesus, he's done this so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, We might have life in his name. And when I think of what John says there at the end of the gospel, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I often give my attention to the fact that he's the Christ and he's the Son of God. And that is what John is revealing to us. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But my mind goes to Christology and, 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 and the person and the nature of Christ and, and Trinitarian theology, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And I think about the Son of God. And, I, I, and I, I fix my intention on that. But we need to remember that John has said, Jesus, this man Jesus, is the Christ, is the Son of God. And sometimes in, in our times of prayer and our worship, when we meditate on who God is, we, we can think of, of Christ, and Christ can become an abstracted figure in our minds. Or we can think of the Son of God, but we're thinking just in, in terms of theological categories and concepts. And we find that God becomes somewhat distant from us. We're thinking of God in abstract terms. And we are reminded as believers that we know the Christ. We know the Messiah. We know the Son of God. We know the triune God. We know God because we know Jesus. And in knowing Jesus, we know the Messiah and we know the Son of God. And John tells us at the beginning of the Gospel that the Word, who was with God, who is God, the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And then he says, we have seen. Now the reason we have seen is because we've seen the word made flesh. We've seen Jesus. And John says, we've seen what? His glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. And remember what the apostle Paul says. That God who said that light shine in darkness has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came down. And as we've been working our way through John 6, again and again, Jesus says, I am the bread that came down. I have come down. I'm here. I'm with you now. And in these latter verses that we'll consider this afternoon, Jesus says that the bread which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. It's my flesh. And so this afternoon, as we consider what John is and what Jesus is revealing to us about himself, he turns our attention to his humanity. He turns our attention to his flesh, to his blood, the incarnation. And yes, when we profess our faith, and many Sundays we are reciting the creed, and we declare concerning the Son, that he's the only begotten from the Father. He's, he's light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same substance as the Father. We declare all of those things. But the reason we know that is because for us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man. And even as our Lord throughout the John's Gospel uses a number of metaphors, In this case, I am the bread of life. Uh, Later, I'm the vine. I'm the living water. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. These are all metaphors that help us understand who he is. But let's remember what the Apostle Paul has said. We have seen the light of uh, of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And yes, in the world around us, we, we are reminded of the Son of God. We're reminded of Christ all around us. Whenever we see water, whenever we see bread, we have bread and wine here at this table. But the, the clearest, the most direct reminder of the Son of God is in the human face, when we see one another. And that's why it's so vital that we can see one another, and we can see our faces, and we can, in person, be together to see our faces, because the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. And we see his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we consider these final verses of John 6 this afternoon, I want us to consider what Jesus says to us here under two main headings uh, the first, revelation, the second, response. But revelation uh, the revelation of, of who Jesus is, the living bread, but his flesh. And his blood. And that in in the face of Jesus Christ, because the word became flesh, there we know, in him we know the living bread. And in believing in him, have life. But then the response. And there are two responses there's one of offense. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then apostasy, walking away. But then there's Peter's response. And the Lord says to us again, he, he looks to each one of us and He says, Will you leave also? And may our response be, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So, first, the, the revelation the revelation of the living bread in the flesh and the blood of Jesus. And here, Jesus is speaking about the bread of life but in, and His blood to the Incarnation. And as Jesus has been speaking, already the the congregation there in the synagogue, and John tells us he's in a synagogue teaching, already the congregation is uncomfortable with what he's saying. Already they're, they're grumbling. We're told that. They're grumbling among themselves. They're offended by this. How can he say he's the one that comes down from heaven? Isn't this Jesus? The son of Joseph, whose parents we know? Like, we know him. How can he say this? They're offended by the claims and the implications of his claims. And Jesus knows that they're grumbling. Now, he doesn't sense that and think, okay, maybe I just need to be, you know, tread a bit more carefully here. No, he, he, he presses on. He pushes them all the more. And he says, the bread that I'm talking about that came down from heaven is my flesh. And they're all the more offended by this. They're grumbling. They fight amongst themselves. How can this man give us his flesh To eat. At that point, Jesus didn't say, "Well, you know, I'm speaking metaphorically here," and so here's what I mean by that. No, he says, "I tell you the truth. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you." Now, to Jewish ears in the first century, this this was if it was a metaphor, and and, uh, I suspect they understood he was speaking metaphorically, but for them, this is a crude metaphor eating your flesh, drinking your blood, why would you speak this way? But our Lord is, is having us to consider his, his flesh and his blood. And John tells us at the beginning of this count that the Passover was near. And we need to remember that. You know, it's been, been three weeks now since we considered the first part of John. But the Passover is near. The Passover is happening. Jesus is talking about the manna from heaven. And everyone there knows the Exodus. They know the story of the Exodus. They know their history. They know God's redemption and deliverance from Egypt. So they're thinking about the Exodus. They're thinking about the Passover. And we need to remember that because when Jesus turns their attention, not just to the manna in heaven, but to his flesh. And when he, say, when he says, the bread that I give for the life of the world in order to save the world from death, In order to cover the world from judgment and death. The bread is my flesh. It's my flesh that I give. And I suspect that some, at least in the congregation, understood, given that it was Passover, that there's a connection here with the Passover lamb. And they understood that Jesus is not only comparing himself to the manna, but also to the Passover lamb, lamb. And the blood of that lamb that was shed for the life of the Hebrews. Now, Jesus says that in, in verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. They're already offended that he, that he had asked them to eat his flesh. Now he's telling them to drink his blood. And in the end, they say, Who, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? In a sense, we can't listen to this anymore. And they leave. Now, we're told that, that these were his disciples, and so we shouldn't think that these, are peop- these are, that these are people that just sort of turned up at the synagogue that, that Saturday in, in Capernaum and are shocked at what this rabbi is saying. They're his disciples. They're those that have been walking with him, listening to him. So they, they should have understood the significance of what Jesus is saying. But we also need to recognize that we are not the, that congregation in the synagogue. And yes, John is reporting what happened that Saturday. But we are those who are now hearing what Jesus is saying in John 6, having already read John 1 to 5. And so we are hearing what Jesus is saying in the light of what John has already reported to us in the gospel. And we have all of that background as we hear what Jesus is saying. And yes, Jesus is talking about giving life. I give life. And we know from the very beginning of the gospel. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And in him was life. In him was life. And then we know that the word came down because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, We've already been thinking about the incarnation. Uh, We know that Jesus is the word made flesh, the incarnate son of God. But then as we read on in John chapter 1, we remember the preaching of John the Baptist who said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we know that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And so when he says that I give my flesh for the life of the world, we should immediately think, yes, because he's the Lamb of God. He's the sacrificial lamb. He gives his life. He sheds his blood to ransom his people, to redeem them, to redeem them from sin, to redeem them from death, from judgment. And we know, having read through the gospel at the end of chapter 2, that uh, Jesus speaks of destroying the temple and rebuilding it in three days. And John tells us he was speaking about his body. His body would be destroyed, his body would be broken, his body would bleed. But three days later, he would be resurrected. And we've heard all of that, we know all of that already. And so when our Lord here is speaking of giving his flesh for the life of the world, and he's speaking of raising us up on the last day, and he speaks of the gift of life that he gives us, we've heard all of this in the gospel already, and we understand it in that background. But what becomes clear is the emphasis on Jesus' flesh and blood now. And it's because that he is the Son of God made flesh, because he will shed his blood. That's why we have life. His blood cleanses us, redeems us, ransoms us from death, which is the penalty for sin. And by his shed blood, we have the forgiveness of sins. And because of his shed blood, we are washed, we are purified. And for that reason, we can come into communion with God. We're reconciled to God and union with Christ. And here Jesus speaks throughout this passage about life, about eternal life, about living forever. And we need to be reminded, we need to understand what he means by this, by eternal life, what it means to live forever. And we shouldn't reduce this to something like, you know, coming upon the fountain of life or the fountain of youth. You know, you keep drinking from that fountain and you'll have immortality. Jesus isn't simply offering immortality here. Or, you know, the, uh, the tale about the Holy Grail. You know, if you find the Grail and you drink from it, you'll have immortality. That's not what Jesus is offering here. And when he speaks of eternal life here, there's two things that he says about it. On the one hand, it means that you will be raised up on the last day. And he says that again and again in this passage, I will raise you up on the last day. And what that means is just as our Lord was resurrected in glory on the third day, so we who put our faith in him, we who know that his blood shed for us, for the forgiveness of our sins and belong to him, we will be raised with him. We will be raised just like him on the last day. Our flesh and blood will be resurrected in glory, just as his flesh and blood was resurrected in glory. So our eternal life is resurrection life, life in glory, the resurrection on the last day. But it's not just that. Because notice what Jesus says in verses 56 and 57. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the Father has sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. So first in 56, Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, when he speaks of feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood, he is using a metaphor here, an analogy with food. And it's one thing to look at food and see it there and recognize this is food. And it's one thing to know, okay, this is the bread from heaven. And we we might have the right view of, of who God is, we might be able to check all the right boxes on the right confession of faith. And we can see and we can, we, we can say, yes, this is, this is who Jesus is. This is who God is. And we can see it. But that's not going to give you life any more than looking at food on the table and saying, yes, I know what that is. We'll nourish your body. You need, you need to take the food. You need to eat the food. And what Jesus is saying here is Believing in me is not just simply having the right opinion about me, giving a certain intellectual assent to a certain set of doctrines. It means coming to me, it means receiving me. In this case, it means abiding in me and I in you. And we need to remember that faith in Scripture, to believe, is covenantal, it's covenant faith. And simply put, a covenant is a relationship of mutual belonging. I am yours, you are mine. When a husband and wife come together and and, and promise to be faithful to one another, they make vows and they are saying to one another, I am yours and you are mine. And by believing in Christ, we are saying, I am yours and you are mine. You are mine. I belong to you. You belong to me. Now, Jesus is saying, he's, he's just said, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood will live forever. Now he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That means that eternal life is not just resurrection life in the future. It is life in union with Christ right now. He abides in me, I in him. It's that life of union. But then notice what Jesus goes on to say. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. Notice that, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. In other words, we have our life in the Son, but as we receive his life, remember what he says in chapter 5. The Father has life in himself, and he has has granted that I should have life in myself. The Father and the Son are unified in a shared life. What Jesus is telling us here, and he's already told us this in chapter 5, is that those who come to him and believe in him receive his very life, the life that he shares with the Father. And union with Christ means communion, fellowship with the Father and the Son. And when we receive him, we enter into that life. And that's a reality now. We know that that life now. We receive that life right now. Now, Jesus tells us something else in this passage, and we need to hear it. Because he says in verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. Now, up until this point, he's been speaking about himself, the Son. The Son gives life. And it's the life of the Father and the Son. Now, he says, the Spirit gives life. And here we see the, uh, the activity, the work of the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the triune God in our salvation and in our eternal life. And when Jesus says, as he said, we heard this last week, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him to me. The way in which the Father draws us to the Son is by the Spirit. The way in which the Son and the life of the Son comes to us is by the Spirit. That's why we confess in the Creed, he is the Lord and life giver. The giver of life. And we've heard already in John's Gospel, it's by the Spirit that we're born again. In chapter 4, it's by the Spirit that we drink the living water that Christ offers. In fact, the living water is the Spirit. And here again, we find that it's the Spirit that comes to us and gives us life. And after he's saying that, he says, the flesh is no help at all. So our life, our salvation, our redemption is entirely a work of God. And it's entirely a work of the triune God. The Father draws us to the Son by the Spirit. The Son gives us life, but it's the Spirit who who brings that life to us, who renews us, who grants that life and draws us to the Son, who then brings us to the Father. And eternal life means communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, we need to take seriously... What Jesus says here about eternal life, it's the resurrection of the body, it's the resurrection of our flesh in our blood on the last day, and it's our union with Christ and our communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because we may be tempted to think, well, eternal life is just some sort of mystical reality. You know, somehow, mystically, I have this union with, with Christ and fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the reason we have that communion and fellowship is because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the the reality of that eternal life and that union and communion now is only a foretaste. We will not know it in its fullness until the last day when we are raised in the flesh. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because we may have a temptation to think, well, this is just... You know, a, a spiritual reality or a mystical reality. But it is a reality that isn't ju- doesn't just concern our souls. If you want to have that kind of distinction of body and soul. It concerns our bodies. And that tells us that what, what, how we live in the flesh now and what we do with our bodies now matters. And remember what the Apostle Paul says. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And when Jesus says, you abide in me and I in you, don't think that's just a spiritual reality. It's a bodily reality. Our bodies are members of Christ, joined to Christ. Our bodies belong to Christ. Our bodies were purchased by the blood of Christ. Our bodies will be raised on the last day. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because whenever a society or a culture, in its hardness of heart, in its rebellion, in its unrepentance, turns away from the life-giving spirit and turns away from the salvation that Christ offers, you will see the abuse of the body. You can count on it. And so we're not surprised that living in a time now, and in a society now that rejects the salvation of Christ, that we see ideologies and policies that abuse the body. Socially, culturally, we see it in, in all manner of sexual immorality and, and perversion and promiscuity. Paul says that's a sin against your body. And we see it in the, in the whole transgender movement. Which is an abuse of the human body. It's an attack on the human body. It's an attack on the image of God. And it's, a, it's an ideology that says we, we can hack up the body and change it. But it denies the integrity and the sanctity uh, and the glory of the human body. And it denies the reality that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it denies the hope of eternal life that in the body we will be raised. And glorified on the last day. Now, because of what the gospel declares about who we are as human beings, and about the body, and about the importance of our uh, of the integrity of the of the body, and the integrity of our gender, and the purity of our sexuality, this is one point where the world is particularly offended by what God's word says and by the gospel. And in Jesus' own ministry and in his teaching in the synagogue, the people were offended. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, as much as we are grieved by what we see going on around us, and I am, I am deeply grieved by these things that we see happening, and especially in our, in our nation with Bill C-6 and in the United States with the Equality Act and this new, I'm not sure what his position is, but health something or other, Yeah. I'm grieved by that. I'm angry about it. But our Lord in his time knew that kind of opposition. He said, uh, he he knew. John tells us he knew those who wouldn't believe in him. He knew the one who would betray him. He knew that. And we shouldn't be surprised that we, we too experience that and know that. And our Lord knows that. He's not surprised by this that there are those who reject him, that there are those who are offended by him. And so, in a way, we can can take comfort and assurance in this. Our Lord knew there would be those who, who would not believe in him, would be offended by him. And so, there are those who are offended by us who come in the name of the Lord. And we know that. This shouldn't be a surprise for us. But as we think of our response, and we think about the response in, in that synagogue and the response of the world today, uh, a hardness, an offense, we need to recognize that the offense of the world can very easily creep in. And we're hearing things all the time on, uh, in the media, and we're, we're reading things, and we're reading lots of articles from Christians who are calling us maybe to have a softened perspective on this, a bit of a nuanced view on that. And we find that the, the offense of the world starts to creep in. And we start to share in the offense of the world. Now, we need to recognize that the reason that that synagogue congregation in the first century was offended, yes, it was a hard word. But they received it as a hard word because their hearts We're hard. And as we start to listen to the world and take on some of the offense of the world, and we start to read things, and we think, yeah, you know what, the Christian perspective on this, maybe it is a bit harsh, maybe it is about outdated, maybe that is bigoted. What's happening is our heart is starting to get hard. And as our heart hardens, we find the Word of God increasingly offensive. So we need to be aware of that but also the last year now for many of us, most of us, maybe all of us has been a year of trial. It's been a year of tribulation. You know that word in uh, tribulation in scripture it carries the idea of pressure. And we've been under pressure. And what can happen over time as we as we persevere and we bear under pressure if you, if you think of uh, someone, you know, either a musician playing guitar or a carpenter or, you know, a, a, someone who works in masonry that is working with his hands a lot, uh, your hands build up, build up calluses. They get hard. Sort of, sort of a natural response to, to the roughness and the pressure. And what can happen to us is over, over the course of a year like we've just had, as we're persevering, we can find resentment sets, sets in, bitterness sets in. There's a, there's a certain hardness of heart that can set in. Our hearts can become calloused. And here we need to, with, and, and as things, as our hearts get harder and callous, we may find that we say, who can listen to this? And we leave. But may we be as Peter who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter knew, I've got nowhere else to go. Lord, where else would I go? You have the words of eternal life. And you may, be in, in, you may have come to a point now where you feel like, I've got to go somewhere else. And I plead with you this afternoon, don't go anywhere else. Look to the Lord, because he has the words of eternal life. And just before that, he has said, my words are spirit and life. He has the words of eternal life. His words are spirit and life. Now, I mentioned before that the way in which the Father draws us to the Son is by the Spirit. The way in which we receive the life from the Son is by the Spirit. The Spirit is the life giver. The Spirit gives life. But as we read on in John's gospel, you'll come to chapter 15, and there our Lord says, I will send you another comforter, the spirit of truth, and he will bear witness about me. He will point you to me. He will bear witness about me. You will know me because he will teach you. He will draw you to me. He will show me to you. But then our Lord goes on in the very next verse to say, and you also said that to his disciples. And this shows us the significance of God's word because the the apostolic witness is the New Testament. And the way in which the Spirit draws us to the Son, the way in which the Spirit brings life to us is by means of the word of God. These words are spirit and truth. These are words of eternal life. And that's why we need to be abiding in God's word, listening to God's word especially if we find our hearts are getting harder. Our hearts are becoming calloused. And as you read through Scripture, there are a number of of metaphors and images that the Bible uses for God's Word. But think of what Moses says concerning the word of the Lord spoken through him. Deuteronomy 32, verse 2. May my teaching drop as the rain, My speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. It's a picture of God's God's word, his word, his teaching falling like gentle rain. Or Isaiah fifty five, verses ten and eleven. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So for as that happens, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now in the context of Isaiah 55, we know the purpose for which God sends his word. To give life, and to grant repentance. And what our Lord, what, what God says at the end of this chapter is, when my word goes out, it will accomplish the purpose for which it, for which I sent it. It will bring life. It will convert. It will bring repentance. But think about this image of the rain coming down, the dew coming down, the snow coming down, the gentle rain. And in the summer, when it's really hot and it hasn't rained for a long time, you know, maybe from your front yard or uh, you're walking in a park, uh, the ground gets really, really hard. And if there's a flash thunderstorm, the rain will come down pretty heavy and it'll just run off. But if there is a slow, steady rain for a couple of days, then it soaks into the soil, It makes the soil soft. And that's the image we have of God's Word the slow and steady rain of God's Word. And if you find your heart is getting hard, submit yourself to the slow and steady rain of God's Word. And it will soften your heart. And then, as Isaiah says, and it will cause life to spring forth. Seed for the sower. Bread for the eater. And what what, uh, our Lord is saying here is, As you feed on me, the implication of what he's saying here, as you feed on me, as you feed on this bread. And yes, Peter, where else will you go? I do have the words of eternal life. And as you feed on these words, and as they are like a a gentle rain falling on hard soil, life will spring forth. And just as Jesus said to the woman at the well, the water that I give you will be in you. A spring welling up to eternal life, overflowing. And so it was for her. She went into that Samaritan village, an overflowing fountain, bearing water of eternal life to that village. And so here, as we feed on the bread, as we feed on his word, life springs forth and we become those who not only feed on the word, but we distribute the the word. And in Jesus' miracle, remember, all of this was a response to the feeding of the 5,000. Remember, there was bread left over. Twelve baskets for the twelve disciples who would then distribute. You know, they had the bread now left over for them. And so we, as we, as we feed on the Word of God, we become sowers of the Word of God, giving bread to the eater. And as we become those who sow the seeds of God's Word who come with the gift, the bread of God's word. We need to be faithful to his word. And there may be a temptation for us, especially in in a hostile society where people are offended by the word of God. There may be a temptation for us to soften God's word. Well, this sounds, you know, this definitely sounds quite bigoted. This, This is definitely offensive. This is going to rub people the wrong way. We need to be careful how we characterize this. Maybe we don't quite. Uh, maybe we just skip over that part. But remember what God says. Yes, the word is like a gentle rain that falls down, but God says through Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. And it's not for us to try and soften God's word. Mm, The people are getting kind of offended by this. Let me tiptoe around this issue or that issue. That's not for us to, to do. And the reason is because the flesh is no help at all. Our revision of God's word, our softening of God's word, means that we are giving people, in a sense, manna. It doesn't give eternal life. But as we are faithful to God's word, feeding on it, hearing it, keeping it, and as we are faithful in speaking it, then the purpose for which he sent it will be accomplished. It will give life. It will bring repentance. And so yes, God's word exposes sin. It convicts sinners. It does that. God's word calls sinners to repentance, to renounce sin, to submit their lives to Christ. God's word warns that Unrepentant sinners will be cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not for us to soften or revise the word of God because the word of God is spirit and life and it's the words of eternal life. And now as we come to the Lord's table, our Lord has commanded us to keep this meal. He's invited us to come to this table. And how appropriate when Jesus is speaking of his flesh and his blood that we respond to this word by coming to this table and receiving this bread and this cup. And our Lord knows that we, we need the, the reassurance of our faith. We need confirmation of the truth and the reality of who he is and what he has done. And that's why our Lord commands us to come to this table, because when we receive this bread, we're receiving his body. When we receive this cup, we're receiving the cleansing, the cleansing power of his blood. We're confirmed in the forgiveness of our sins. And we know that just as we eat this bread and drink this cup, so we know that we abide in him and he in us. And that's what the Apostle Paul says, is this cup not a participation, a communion in the body of Christ, or in the blood of Christ, in this bread, communion, fellowship with the body of Christ. And so let's come to the table now knowing that the full truth and reality of what our Lord has promised in John chapter 6 is communicated to us and confirmed in us when we come to this table.